Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager for Metagenics. In this podcast, I had the privilege of speaking to Professor Rima Rosen. Rima is a professor of human genetics and pediatrics and associate vice principal at the McGill University in Montreal, Canada. With an impressive career that spans over three decades, Professor Rosen is a world leader in understanding genetic influences on folate metabolism, with a particular focus on MTHFR. With over 200 peer-reviewed papers to date, in addition to holding several patents in the field, Rima is truly an expert in folate metabolism and MTHFR. In the 1990s, Rima and her team were responsible for cloning the MTHFR gene and identifying several MTHFR polymorphisms. Professor Rosen's team also developed the MTHFR gene test, which is used today in clinical practice. Before we jump into the podcast, I thought it might be useful to give a quick explanation on some of the terminology used in this podcast, in case you're not too familiar with the nomenclature. MTHFR, or methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, is an enzyme in the folate pathway that is responsible for metabolizing folic acid into what's often called the active form of folate. This form, known as 5-MTHF, donates a methyl group to the methionine pathway and in the process lowers homocysteine. The MTHFR gene contains several single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, with the SNP at the 677 site being the most widely studied and has the strongest links to disease. Basically, there are three possibilities of the 677 genotype. The 677CC is known as the wild type and has the highest enzymatic activity. The 677CT is called heterozygous and is often said to have around about 60% function of the wild type. Finally, there is the 677TT, which is what mostly Rima discusses in the podcast. This genotype is often referred to as homozygous and is reported to have around about 30% activity compared to the wild type. Without any further ado, let's hear from Professor Rosen. Thanks for joining us, Rima. I appreciate you taking your time of your day. Now, you're a... Uh probably the pioneer in MTHFR, you discovered the enzyme back in the early 90s, is that correct? Well, we cloned the gene in the 90s. The enzyme had been identified earlier on and had been shown to be involved in homocystinuria, but it was our cloning of the gene and identification of mutations and polymorphisms, which I guess brought the gene into the forefront. Okay, fantastic. And soon after that, you started looking at associations with folate intake and uh, the genotypes. Is that correct? Yes, we had done some clinical studies early on after identification of the gene and its mutations. So we did a fair number of human studies, and then we moved into uh, animal models so that we could identify the diseases and the mechanisms by which MTHFR could cause disease. So uh, we've done a mixture of, you know, various studies. Great. Perhaps uh, I I believe when we were talking earlier, you wanted to try and differentiate between homocystinuria and also just the more common um, SNPs that we see in our day-to-day patients. Could you describe the two differences there? Sure. Uh, so homocystinuria is a classic inborn error of metabolism where uh, the children have to have two mutations, one from the mother, one from the father, 
to have this relatively severe uh, metabolic disease. So it's like cystic fibrosis or PKU or other fairly serious disorders. And if you have mutations in MTHFR, which significantly affect the activity of the enzyme, uh, then you would likely have homocystinuria. There are other causes of homocystinuria, but since we are talking about MTHFR today, I wanted to bring that up. But it has to be a severe mutation in the sense that it knocks out the enzyme, uh, you know, down to 10% or 5% of its normal activity for children to get this relatively serious disease. So we call this a very deleterious type of mutation. The uh, most of the literature in MTHFR now is on what we call the polymorphism. And a polymorphism is essentially a mutation, but it's a polymorphism that's frequent in the population. So a mutation is simply a DNA change. Polymorphism is a DNA change, but a polymorphism is a mutation that is very common. And so the 677 C to T mutation, for which MTHFR has become quite well known, um, is what we call a polymorphism because it's so common. And fortunately, it is a mild deficiency in the sense that it decreases enzyme activity by 40 to 50 or 60 percent, depending on whether you have one or two copies of this change. But it is not as deleterious as homocystinuria. So it becomes a risk factor for disease rather than a pronounced disorder with vascular and neurologic complications. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So how common or uncommon would be the, um, you know, the the homocystinuria in the children, and what, what manifestations does that produce? Well, it, it's very rare, fortunately, uh, and it does cause thrombosis. It causes developmental delays, mental retardation. It can have a milder course where the onset might be later on in the teenage years or some in adult years, but it is really a distinct disorder, whereas if you have the 677 uh, you know, change, you would appear to be perfectly normal and you would have no obvious conditions whatsoever. So, for example, I know I'm a 677TT homozygote and I'm perfectly normal, at least externally. Uh, and so it, it, it's a risk factor for disease. It's not an outright manifestation of symptoms and diseases. Sure. So we can't really extrapolate from the homocystinuria that those yeah. conditions may occur in um, the carriers of 67TT. That's correct. They're very distinct types of problems. Okay. And so, yeah, we obviously spent a lot of time looking at 67TT, and one of the areas I found intriguing was your discussion or the discussion literature that um, it may not be this quote-unquote mutation, but it may be adaptive in certain regions. Can you describe that? Well, it's quite common all over the world. And it's likely to have occurred only one time based on the surrounding sequences. Uh, and these are genetic studies uh, by others who have, as I said, suggested that this particular change occurred only once, but it has spread throughout the world. And the highest frequencies of this uh, mutation or polymorphism appear to be in the southern Mediterranean and in Hispanic populations, which would have been derived from the initial Spanish uh, community. So one can see frequencies for homozygosity as high as uh, 20 to 30% in some Hispanic populations in North America, and in the ancestral Spanish or even in some Italian 
regions, you can see 15 to 20 percent homozygosity, which is relatively high. So generally speaking, when a genetic change becomes common in a population, there's uh, the theory that perhaps it had some selective advantage, you know, hundreds of years ago or a thousand years ago, whenever it first arose. And in many genetic disorders, it's been resistance to malaria that has kept a, a polymorphism or a mutation uh, frequent in abundance. And so we actually did those studies in our mouse model of mild MTHFR deficiency. We, uh, we infected them with malaria, and we found that those that had this mild MTHFR deficiency actually survived better than those that did not have the mutation. So that was consistent with a potential selective advantage. And for those of you that are familiar with other uh, Mediterranean disorders, in the in there are a lot of hemoglobinopathies, uh, frequent uh, frequent um, disturbances, hemoglobin metabolism in the Mediterranean communities in Italy and and other North African populations. Um, and it's thought to be also resistance against malaria. So this was actually consistent with what's been uh, seen in other genetic disorders in that region. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, we'll speak in a moment about the other potential, I suppose, risk uh, reduction with carrying the 67TT, but let's just uh, briefly turn our attention to the studies that show that if one possesses the TT that they may be at increased risk. What sort of conditions have they found in the, in the research? Well, the classic and the first one that we identified was the increased risk for neural tube defects, and that's because neural tube defects have been traditionally associated with uh, an abnormal folate metabolism. So that was the first one that we actually looked at, and it does appear to be a risk factor for neural tube defects. Um, since that time, there's a wealth of disorders that have been reported to be linked to the polymorphism. Some of them are still controversial. Uh, some of them require more, more work for us to be certain, but there may be increased risk of a stroke, there may be increased risk of other birth defects, uh, pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia, possibly infertility. Some neuropsychiatric disorders have even been reported to be associated with this polymorphism, schizophrenia, depression, even autism. So uh, you name it, and there are a lot of you know reports out there. Uh, whether they will all stand the test of time, I'm not sure. Uh, one of the critical issues in all these reports is that one has to look at the level of folate or the folate status in the individuals when one is looking at the genotype. Uh, we haven't started to discuss that yet, but it's very critical that um, to know that the MTHFR change is dependent on folate status to manifest these risks or the problems in, in uh, metabolism. So if your folate status is adequate, you really need not worry about this MTHFR change. However, if your folate is relatively low, then it's possible that you will have increased risk for these disorders. So when uh, reports are you know, come out in the literature and they don't look at the folate status of the cases and the controls, then one has to worry about these results a little bit. And that's been a serious problem in the literature. But fortunately, 
for some of these studies, as in, you know, neural tube defects and others, the, the wealth of data really are quite strong in suggesting that MTHFR677 is a risk factor. Thank you for that. Yeah, that, this uh, has also tran uh, translated into clinic where practitioners often state that the MTHFR is a serious risk factor, but that message about the folate status hasn't really come through yet. But that was something you discovered uh, very early on, I believe? Yes. Uh, we believe that this particular change destabilizes the enzyme. And so when we looked at uh, lymphocytes of individuals with and without mutation, we found that this enzyme is pretty unstable when you heat it. Um, however, if you add some folate into the reaction mix, then the enzyme becomes stabilized. In fact, even the normal enzyme becomes stabilized. So uh, folate uh, prevents the enzyme from degradation. And so if you have this genetic change, an extra bit of folate uh, will keep it functioning relatively normally, we believe. Um, and I know that you might be interested in, in riboflavin, uh, we found the same thing with riboflavin in those studies, that riboflavin did the exact same thing. Actually, FAD, which is a cofactor for MTHFR, which is made from riboflavin, FAD also stabilizes MTHFR. So um, those were in those same early studies of lymphocytes suggesting that the enzyme is unstable, and both of those... Uh, factors may help to stabilize the enzyme and allow it to function relatively normally. That's really interesting and important to know. And that also is the case, and I'll probably labor this point throughout the podcast, but the, there's a almost a folate wars going on about which folic acid is better. Is it folic acid or uh, 5-MTHF? And 5-MTHF, I presume, it also stabilize uh, the MTHFR enzyme as well? Yes, uh, but Again, one has to realize that those are studies done in a, in a test tube. Uh, but nonetheless, in terms of uh, many of the studies that have been done with uh, TT individuals and giving them folic acid or 5-methyl-THF, you know, there are some papers that think that the methyl-THF is better. There are others that think that the folic acid does just as good a job. So I don't think there's a very strong case for the methyl THF per se. It appears that folic acid probably does just as good a job and it's relatively cheap and abundant. And so, uh, you know, unless the story changes, I would not at this point say that one needs methyl THF to overcome the effect of the MTHFR polymorphism. Sure. I think um, sometimes, and uh, I, I sort of have the view that they're, they're both fine, but um, perhaps 5-MTHF doesn't have all these uh, extra benefits that some claim, but some sometimes you see in the literature and in the trade in our area that they'll cite a, a single study head-to-head uh, 5-MTHF -head versus, uh, versus folic acid, and it's typically just a single dose. I think your work found that, well, you, I heard you say once previously that 5-MTHF uh, will stabilise the enzyme quicker, but over time uh, folic acid will do the same thing over a matter of weeks. and all the long-term data I look at over, say, three months head-to-head, -head, they seem pretty comparable at uh, increasing blood folate and also lowering homocysteine. 
we did not do a lot of those studies ourselves. We did the, as I said, the in vitro studies, which are, you know, in a, in a test tube and they, yes. they give you some of the theory, but it's obviously better to test patients. And my understanding of the literature is, is exactly what you said that, um, I don't see any compelling reason to recommend methyl THF over folic acid in terms of, you know, stabilizing this enzyme and allowing it to, you know, reduce homocysteine levels. Sure. Now, as I believe you were part of the development of the MTHFR uh, test, and so I think it might be quite interesting to get your take on the clinical utility of performing this test. Can you just describe the background of your involvement in developing the, the commercially available test? Well, it, it was fairly straightforward in the sense that we cloned the gene, and so we identified the sequence change. Uh, and so once you identify the sequence change, it's relatively straightforward to develop a test and the way that we did it, uh, you know, 20 years ago uh, isn't necessarily the way one would do it now. There have been many variations on the theme, but once you know the sequence change, there are a variety of tests that will allow you to uh, determine whether someone actually has 677 or not. So the, the test is pretty straightforward. Um, Again, the question is, do you need the test and when do you need the test and so on? And that has been quite controversial, uh, <laughs> at least here in North, at least here in North America. Mm-hmm. I gather that Australians, uh, you know, sort of favor MTHFR testing for a variety of reasons. But, um, I certainly do not think it should be used as a screening test, as a widespread, you know, test for everyone. Um, there are, some indications. So, for example, if you identify a high homocysteine value, then one might want to know why the individual has high homocysteine. High homocysteine has been linked to a variety of disorders, including stroke, uh, possibly some pregnancy complications, even Alzheimer's disease these days may, uh, may be influenced by homocysteine levels. So, if for whatever reason, someone has a high homocysteine test, you may want to check the MTHFR because that would tell you why the homocysteine is high. Uh, there are uh, there are papers suggesting that MTHFR and homocysteine increase the risk for stroke to some extent. So, uh, again, if it's easier to do a homocysteine test, you may or may not want to do the MTHFR test. Um, but if you have, if it, in some cases the DNA test is actually a lot easier than the biochemical uh, test for homocysteine, that may not be as widely available. So both of those, to some extent, will, will, will cover the same types of disorders. Um, however, if you're already uh, taking adequate, or in, you know, your diet has adequate folate, or you're taking a simple vitamin for a variety of reasons, then it's very likely that the amount of folate in that vitamin is already compensating for the genetic change, and therefore you do not need the MTHFR test. So, um, you know, because I happen to know I'm a homozygote, I take, you know, these one-a-day type vitamins, and, and then I don't care that I have an MTHFR mutation. So if it's someone who's already using sort of these one-a-day type vitamins with a minimal amount of folate, that would overcome the effect of the mutation, so you do not need the test. 
Sure. However, the only time as a geneticist, though, um, I do find that sometimes if you identify or you indicate to an individual that they have a genetic predisposition to something, then they often become more motivated to uh, take a simple treatment. So if it's a motivating factor for someone to know that they have an MTHFR polymorphism and therefore that extra folate would benefit them, then they might be more motivated to take that simple vitamin. And, and again, that's been my personal experience. So um, I use that example. Great. Yeah, that's the, sort of the conclusion I was coming to with that it could be possibly really good for gaining compliance if the person knows they've got an increased uh, need or requirement for folic acid or whatever form of folate, then they're more likely to be compliant. And just back to the stabilizing of the enzyme and the intake, it's nothing heroic, is it, uh, to get that stabilization and to overcome the 6,7-TT? As I understand, it's the typical 400-odd micrograms a day of folic acid will be sufficient. That. That's the understanding that 400 micrograms should be fine. Uh, maybe up to 600 would be reasonable. But uh, as I suspect we're going to discuss, uh, we really don't want to get into high folate levels, which might actually do more harm than good. But certainly 400 to 600 micrograms would take care of the MTHFR problem without worrying about potential risk factors for the high folate that are now coming to light. Great, and that, and also the, the vitamin B2 again, which was from Helene Nolte's work. Not typically heroic doses. I think it was only 1.6 milligrams a day of vitamin B2 to help the FAD coenzyme stabilize the MTHFR. Right, right. We're looking at modest levels of vitamins and not, uh, you know, uh, pharmacologic doses, shall we say? Sure. Which is a great segue for one of the, your other discoveries was when we push it too far, it's like this Goldilocks zone with most things in um, biology that you, you want to, that just the right amount, not too much and not too little. And, and you've looked at the other extreme of uh, adding too much uh, folic acid and the consequences there. You're almost creating the, the condition you're trying to overcome. Do you better describe this pseudo-MTHFR deficiency? Uh, yes, these are some recent studies that we've been doing, uh, and they're in animal models because obviously I don't think we want to subject individuals to very high doses without having a good reason. So in these uh, mouse studies, we found that high folate, and in this case we were talking about 10 times and perhaps 5 times the recommended amount for, for these mice, uh, we found that if we gave 10 times the amount of uh, recommended folate to adult mice, they got liver disease. If we gave five times the amount um, to these mice while they were pregnant, we had extra birth defects. So there is some evidence, to certainly in animal models, to suggest that high folate uh, has some harm. And one of the, the mechanisms that we identified was that, in fact, MTHFR is reduced in these animals in the liver, and the liver is the major site of, of folate metabolism. So when you reduce MTHFR in the liver, you essentially end up with an MTHFR deficiency, which we know is harmful in certain situations. So you're creating uh, an MTHFR deficiency with this high folate. Now, I should say that we have not 
repeated these studies in humans yet. Uh, obviously, we would like to. I don't know how if we will be able to find the exact same kind of um, outcomes because it might be tissue specific in the sense that perhaps it's only inhibited in liver and not in blood or placenta or tissues that are readily accessible in humans. But nonetheless, there are some studies coming out in humans, um, in women, uh, who if they took too much folate during pregnancy, uh, they found that some children had psychomotor uh, problems or there was some uh, growth retardation in utero in the women that took very high folate. Uh, now, of course, you, you can't identify the mechanisms that easily, but nonetheless, there are some studies emerging by which high folate may actually cause harm. Uh, these are relatively recent studies during pregnancy, but there were earlier studies in terms of high folate and immune response. There's always been some concern about high folate and cancer, although there's no data. And in fact, uh, most recent data has suggested that the high folate does not appear to increase the incidence of cancer, at least in the five years or so that they've looked at thus far. But that doesn't mean it couldn't increase sort of the long term uh, risks for cancer or other disorders. Um, and, and I don't want to scare anyone. I just would say that until we know that high folate is completely safe, there is really no need to take those kinds of high levels when we know that 400, 600 micrograms, even up to a milligram, appears to be perfectly safe and one doesn't have to worry about higher doses. So in the studies that I quoted in mice, the equivalent amounts in humans would be milligram amounts, such as two, three, four, five milligrams in, uh, in in adult uh, you know pregnant women or adult men so moderation is, is sort of my message overall yeah it's a little bit hard to try and sell moderation sometimes and there's all these uh, more extreme views but uh, would you recommend monitoring blood levels or is that uh, you know up to a capping at say a milligram dose sufficient you wouldn't need to if you're not going above a milligram you shouldn't have to check blood levels for screen for excess folic acid, if we're trying to somewhat compare to the, the animal models? Well, folic levels aren't routinely screened for. Um, so unless you're really taking high doses, you know, if you're under a milligram, there's, there's really no point in screening. But the other thing that happens, at least in what's been seen thus far, is your folate will go up two to three fold if you're taking you know, higher levels of folate, and then beyond that, it doesn't increase in blood anymore because it's going to be metabolized or excreted. And so, you know, if you're taking 20 times more, 10 times more, it's not clear that your folate in plasma will go up high enough for you to say this is an extremely high dose. So we can monitor folate levels up to a point, but I think the uh, ultimate uh way of ensuring we're safe is just to indicate that we really do not need to take beyond one milligram. Now, that's not to say that higher levels are not recommended ever. Uh, and in fact, in Canada, and I don't know if this is the same recommendation elsewhere, women who have had children with uh, neural tube defects, spina bifida, for example, uh, are recommended to take four or five milligrams. Um, 
And so we don't know if that's the amount that they absolutely have to have or whether they would manage with two to three milligrams. We just haven't had enough clinical trials to know. But nonetheless, those are the amounts that are currently recommended for women that have had a child with spina bifida. So I suspect that will not change until we have some clinical trials to ensure that those levels are relatively safe. Sure. We'll move to our neural tube defect section in a moment. But just before we do, uh, with these folate studies in the high doses, there is a view that, again, the 5-MTHF, has somewhat immunity against all these issues in terms of um, cancers and so forth. I'm not sure if they have done the studies to, to look at that, but I presume that this applies to 5-MTHF as well. We, uh, yeah, 5-MTHF, we shouldn't overdo that one neither. As you said, I'm not sure we have enough studies to be able to say that, but I would certainly... Uh, indicate or, or state that there's no need to go to very high levels for 5-methyl or folic acid because under most circumstances, you know, the lower levels will certainly be fine, certainly to overcome the MTHFR effect, which is the most common, you know, polymorphism out there. So there's no need to recommend higher levels, whether they do harm or not. But certainly for methyl THF, there are less, there are, you know, lower numbers of studies than we have for folic acid itself. Great, so yes. And moderation is the, the message there. Now, moving on to neural tube defects, again, this is sort of to counter some of the uh, uh, criticism of folic acid. Uh, neural tube defects, can you describe how much of a role folate plays? As I understand, it's not all cases of neural tube defects are due to a, a folate deficiency, whether that's 5-MTHF or folic acid. Yes, it's thought that about 60 to 65 percent of neural tube defects are folate responsive. Uh, there are probably a variety of other causes for the, the remainder of those uh, neural tube defects, but we really don't know all of them. Uh, since we are covering nutrition today, um, I would mention that another nutrient, choline, in at least one study, uh, a deficiency of choline may increase risk for neural tube defects. Uh, and we really don't know as much about choline as we know about folate, but it is important in brain development. And uh, it actually overlaps with folate in terms of some of its functions. Uh, in, uh, in other words, both of them uh, contribute methyl donors for methylation reactions, which are important in embryonic development as well as in adult life. So both folate and choline, you know, sort of cover each other in terms of the methylation uh, pathway. Uh, but choline has other roles. Uh, it's important for production of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. That's why it's got the, you know, the choline in the name, which is, you know, neurotransmitter for brain development. And there are quite a few studies, at least in animal models, showing that choline is very important for brain development, um, but not as many studies in humans, although it is emerging as an important nutrient, you know, sort of especially uh, on the coattails of folate, if we can say that, because mm -hmm. they are both involved in methylation. Yeah, I've seen some data where, yes, choline was uh, a risk factor for neural tube defects despite uh, adequate uh, folate intake, and this has really been driven by um, probably your friend and colleague, Stephen um, Zeisel. 
So, and uh, my take-home message is that there's a lot of redundancy in these pathways. If the, the folate's somewhat, quote-unquote, lagging, perhaps enough choline will um, also help furnish that. And I believe the um, homocystinuria patients, you provide them with betaine, which is the downstream form of choline that helps uh, their one carbon metabolism. Is that correct? That is correct, that betaine, uh, which is a metabolite of choline, is important to lower homocysteine levels in patients with homocystinuria. So yes, it adds a methyl group the same way that folate would add a methyl group to homocysteine to detoxify it to methionine. So that is certainly an important role for choline and its downstream metabolite betaine. But even on its own, choline, as I said, is, is important to generate acetylcholine. It's also important for another metabolite, phosphatidylcholine, which is present in membranes, and it's important for fending off liver disease. So there are quite a few uses for choline, uh, but we really don't have all the data in terms of choline deficiency. Nonetheless, in terms of current recommended daily allowances for choline, um, it's been stated in some in some reports that most of us, uh, about 80% or maybe even higher, are not getting the recommended amount of choline. So it is interesting that uh, this nutrient seems to be undervalued, uh, at least at the present time. Yes, we are, I think there's some data from the U.S., particularly pregnant women are, are not getting the recommended, I think, it's 450 milligrams a day. They're down at about 100, which is quite alarming considering the, the emerging work by Zycel on, uh, I think, is it memory and uh, neurogenesis in the hippocampus, I think, that the, in mouse models with a lack of choline. But, yeah. Exactly, yes. In case of watching yes, the Right. We don't have enough data in humans, but certainly uh, in mice, and we've done some studies in mice as well, you know, the low choline is a problem in terms of, of brain development. So until we really have, you know, figured out the whole choline story, I, I would recommend that at least we think about choline in our everyday diet. And one gets choline from eggs and liver, uh, wheat germ, uh, meat. And, you know, maybe people have been avoiding those kinds of food because of the cholesterol crazes and so on. But nonetheless, we need some of those particular dietary constituents to maintain our choline level. So it's certainly something to think about, uh, at least during pregnancy. Yeah, definitely. Now, whilst on pregnancy and brain development, um, there's been, I'm not sure if you've followed the literature too much, but somewhat, again, similar to the cancer controversy with folate, that it, whether it's protective or um, promotes cancer. With um, autism, there's some mixed messages about folate administration um, prenatally and the risk of autism in the offspring. I think there's some initial early reports that it increased risk, but then I've seen more recent studies in larger trials showing that it's decreasing the risk. Have you looked at this in any, any way? Not to any great extent, but uh, we certainly know that low folate during pregnancy uh, certainly in animal models, uh, you know, affects memory and other functions in the brain. Um, and we know that MTHFR deficiency in the severe homocystinuric form, you know, can cause homocystinuria, schizophrenia, and, and, and a wide variety of sort of behavioral complications, which are very different. In other words, 
not every patient is the same when they have homocystinuria due to MTHFR deficiency. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, the mild 677, uh, you know, uh, change also leads to some neurobehavioral complications, but we certainly need more data in terms of autism. It's, there's not enough in the literature yet. And then, of course, the the underlying problem with all these studies is you have to look at folate, and you have to look at folate at the time of pregnancy, or at least at the time of development of the brain, which is in the first month of life or first month of gestation. So, you know, many women don't even know they're pregnant until they're, you know, six weeks. And so, you know, whereas the neural tube and the brain starts to develop early on, um, you know, we usually don't have folate levels from those women. So it's very hard to do a proper uh, study to determine whether MTHFR and or folate contribute to autism or schizophrenia and, and other disorders, which are thought to be early developmental uh, neurobehavioral problems. Um, and in fact, we've been talking about folate in terms of prevention of neural tube defects. And, and of course, it's important, but I think what women need to know, particularly young women, is that they should be taking this folate while they're planning a pregnancy because certainly in North America, about 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. And so uh, they may not be getting the amount of, uh, you know, adequate amounts of folate in the first month when the brain is starting to develop. So when you're planning a pregnancy, you really should be taking, you know, about 400 or 600 micrograms for a couple of months. Uh, you know, before you actually become pregnant. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, now, we've covered folate, we've covered uh, choline. It might just be good to touch upon the, the third pathway in transsulfuration and how that's important in metabolising homocysteine. Have you looked at much work there and what was, what's your message from uh, transsulfuration? Well, transsulfuration is, is, uh, is almost a degradative pathway for, for homocysteine, but uh, right now the mutations in that pathway um, really lead to homocystinuria as in, you know, a severe deficiency of the genes or enzymes in that pathway. There are some polymorphisms that have been identified. In other words, not rare mutations, but common mutations. But those have not been as well characterized as what we've been discussing with MTHFR, for example. So it's not clear that there are common mutations in the transsulfuration pathway that lead to increased risk for disease. It's really the severe, more deleterious types of mutations. But fortunately, in, in homocystinuria, even some of those deleterious mutations are actually responsive to vitamin B6 or pyridoxine. So, uh, and those would be mutations in the gene for cystathionine beta synthase. Um, again, a classic inborn error of metabolism, but a fair percentage of those individuals are uh, responsive to vitamin B6. So it is a complicated pathway or groups of pathways in that there are many vitamins involved and they may or may not interact if you have multiple deficiencies or multiple uh, polymorphisms in different genes in that pathway. So certainly important to maintain a variety of nutrients uh, in terms of the recommended levels for, you know, daily consumption. 
Great. And one other while I'm on the subject, just a question we had noticed, but the um, dihydrofolate reductase back up the top where folic acid plugs into the uh, folate cycle, some of the strong advocates of the 5-MTHF feel that that's an issue, that's a big roadblock, getting the folic acid into the system. We spoke to Rima Obit about this, but again, I wouldn't mind your views on is this an issue if someone takes folic acid, will it will get through that pathway and ultimately lower homocysteine? Uh, well, uh, as you say, you need the dihydrofolate reductase to convert the folic acid to, you know, the active biologic form. Um, but if one takes the kinds of doses that we've been talking about at the level of 400 micrograms and so on, uh, there's no data to suggest that the DHFR will not be able to convert it effectively. Um, so, uh, again, as long as one sort of maintains sort of modest intakes of, of folic acid, then there shouldn't be a problem. Uh, admittedly, folic acid can uh, increase in, in the blood uh, if one takes too much folic acid or eats too many fortified cereals. Um, but that can be uh, a transit phenomenon. Um, and when we talk about high folate, it's not clear whether we're talking about the total amount of folate that's the problem or whether it's folic acid specifically that is the culprit. Okay, great. So, yeah, time will tell with more data, which is typically what yes. scientists say. Yes. <laughs> well, I think we have a fair bit on this particular yeah. pathway already. Yeah. And certainly, you know, in terms of the classic disorder, neural tube defects, you know, I have to say that this has been one, um, you know, major accomplishment by physicians that we have a birth defect that we can prevent. I mean, how many other birth defects are there out there that we can prevent with a simple vitamin? Yes. So, you know, the clinical trials, you know, going back to the 70s, you know, it's an amazing uh, bit of literature to identify something that can prevent birth defects. Yes, yes, and that's what worries me a little bit with this uh, criticism of folic acid and perhaps the not understanding that not all neural tube defects are uh, attributed to a lack of folate. If, if it's a folate issue, then folic acid will uh, do the job. Probably 5-MTH will do similar, but... Um, yes, as, as I've said, I feel that folic acid is somewhat maligned in this area and it's done a, served us very, very well up until this point. Right. And uh, in fact, we have, uh, you know, fortified our grains and in, in, um, we have mandated fortification of food in North America. I gather that in Australia it's uh, voluntary fortification still. Is that correct? Uh, I haven't followed it too closely. I, okay. I, I, I don't. Okay, I, anyways, I won't comment on Australia, but in, in North America where we have fortified our uh, food with folic acid, uh, we know that the incidence of neural tube defects has gone down by anywhere between 20 to 50 percent, depending on, you know, the study that you look at or where and so on. So that's an amazing accomplishment, and in fact, that's about what you would predict, you know, 50%, 60% maximum um, because of, you know, not all neural tube defects are going to be folate responsive. Yeah, yeah. pretty compelling data. 
Well, we might um, wrap it up there a bit. You've been very generous to donate your time. So just a, a few take-home messages. Um, folic acids, get the right amount. Don't go too little. Don't have too much. Either other forms. We've also got the folinic acid, which I forgot to, to mention. For practitioners, they have the option of folic acid, 5-MTHF, and also folinic acid. But in my understanding, head-to-head, -head, they're all pretty comparable. Um, don't yes. Don't forget the, the vitamin B2. And, yes, with the MTHFR, that, that it could be a good um, compliance tool, perhaps not, not terribly diagnostic, would you agree? But in terms of compliance, it could be a valuable addition there. Yes. Fantastic. Any other final parting messages you think it's important for our practitioners to know? Uh, well, we didn't discuss cancer. Oh yeah, true. Uh, yeah, we can. And I, I just, that. I just would, I just would mention that low dietary folate is a risk factor for certain cancers, particularly colon cancer. So you know, the extra fortification of food and you know, sort of a bit of daily folate, it, it's been very well studied, and um, you really do decrease your risk for colon cancer if you have an adequate dietary intake of folate. Um, now, uh, so there's another sort of reason for, uh, you know, sort of a modest supplementation. It's, it's an important disorder. And the data are quite solid for that. Right. Yes. So again, it's some, there was some earlier reports, but the, I think there's a larger trial with 50,000 patients over a relatively long term using up to a milligram a day of folic acid. And it, that didn't show to at least increased risk. I don't think it was terribly protective across all cancers, but perhaps the, um, for colon cancer, that the message is a bit stronger there. Was there a yes. str strange, to me, it almost seems like a bit of a paradox. Does it, one who possesses the 6,7-TT have a protective effect if you get enough folic acid for colon cancer? That's an interesting question. I mean, that is what the data seem to show, that if you have adequate folate, the MTHFR may be sort of an added benefit in terms of decreasing uh, risk. Um, one of the possibilities mechanistically is that you shunt your folates from methyl THF to other folates which participate in DNA synthesis. So perhaps you have more folate to repair your DNA because that's one of the causes of yes. uh, cancers if your DNA gets damaged. So if you have this MTHFR mutation, as I said, you have more non-methyl folate than less methyl folate, which could increase, you know, DNA repair. But that's really hypothetical. Um, but, you know, it does make sense mechanistically. And as I said, the studies are quite strong to suggest that um, both an adequate intake of folate and the MTHFR TT polymorphism reduce your risk for colorectal cancer. Perhaps some good news for those who possess the, the, that genotype. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Reem, it's been fantastic. I know it's uh, getting dark and late and cold where you are in Canada. So I really thank you for your time, and I'll, I won't hold you up anymore. But um, fantastic work thus far, and I look forward to following more of your research in the uh, literature, and I really appreciate the time you've given today. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.